Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Chris Benini, Nicole Auerbach here, as we always are, to dive into everything college football. You are listening to the Until Saturday feed. Be sure to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Drop us a five-star review. Leave us a question with your review. We'll answer it live on the show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel because we go live every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday throughout the season. And we will be doing that after CFP rankings starting next week as well. Sunday show is a lot of fun. It is our Sunday sound off stream. We listen to you, the listeners. We hear from you directly. Send us voicemails and sign up for the Until Saturday newsletter where you'll get your daily fill of college football news right into your inbox. Chris, welcome back to Power Hour. A lot has happened since we did this last. A lot has happened, including you and I seeing each other in person briefly in East Lansing for a not so exciting football game. But we're back to talk about a whole lot that has transpired since right before then and since after then. So let's not waste any time. No, let's not. We will dive right into it. Although I will just, again, shout out uh, the the Daily. They did not lose to the state news last week because they didn't play. Oh, We'd like yeah. to get that ba- game back. Yeah, I had a number of people in East Lansing mention that to me. A couple of Michigan Daily writers did come up to me in the press box in East Lansing, said they did an inter-squad scrimmage. Uh, I have been, we have been asked to mediate a daily state news coming together at some point. Uh, I hope we can get to that when tensions are a little bit lower, but we, we got a lot of feedback on that from the podcast last week and yes, and everything. So, uh, appreciate everybody who reached out about that. We hope it will come back. Yes. Uh, now let's get into the real news of the week. We'll start with the power five as we always do. We sort of adhere to the strategy of treating this like a true power hour where you talk about something for a minute, you move on to the next. It's not going to be a minute, especially with topic number one, the latest on the sign-stealing allegations and the in-person scouting scandal that is affecting the University of Michigan football program. Now, we have not done a show since all of this broke, but obviously they've been discussing it on this podcast feed. We know the basics But what we learned on Monday, uh, Austin, Meek, and myself were traversing. We were talking to different schools. We know of at least five Big Ten schools where Connor Stallions, the Michigan staffer who is currently on paid leave, was buying tickets to go to games that did not involve Michigan at these schools. They were playing Michigan in a couple of weeks. These tickets tended to be near the 50-yard line. And at least one school has in-stadium surveillance footage that shows someone filming their team's sideline from one of the seats purchased by Connor Stallions. Filming was done on a smartphone. Um, we There are different numbers of times that he was buying tickets for different amount of schools. ESPN reported that he bought tickets in his own name to over 30 games at 11 different Big Ten schools, including tickets bought 
on both sides of the field for Penn State, Ohio State last weekend, which obviously those seats were not used. So this is giving us a sense of what this looked like. Buying tickets, sometimes transferring them to other people's names. We don't know who yet was involved. The tickets were expensive. These are prime real estates. We're talking about, you know, near the 50-yard line. A couple people at different schools that we talked to yesterday mentioned hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So, Chris, now that we are getting a sense of how this scheme supposedly worked, what do you make of this scandal? Well, it it feels very much like or even more than like the New England Patriots like Spygate scandal back in the day. It's just it's very cut and dry what was apparently happening. Now, how much against the rules it is, how impactful it was is Still, I think, to be determined, but it's pretty clear everybody in the Big Ten is very unhappy about this, and they are willing to let people know and also let Indianapolis, let the Big Ten know that uh, something will need to be done about this. What is done? I don't know. We don't know how long this investigation is going to take. We don't know other details uh, that could come out. It's kind of unprecedented territory for it to happen during the season. We'll get into this more later in the show as well. But in terms of reacting to the news we got late late last week, early this week, um, it's very kind of clear and open now what was going on. Yes. And I think, you know, now you're seeing how it's played out. We've seen different clips of Connor Stallions on the sidelines and the Michigan sideline reacting to play calls. Which, again, that the sign-stealing part is not the part that is against the NCAA rules. It is in-person scouting. It is potentially recording what you're seeing on these sidelines um, and then using that later on. It is unprecedented. There's no scandal or precedent here in recent NCAA history to look at for penalties, but we will dive into a little bit more than what that means later on in today's show on the rocks appropriately. Uh, But that is number one. No, also, by the way, any slancing since I was there, we looked. Jesse Minter, the defense coordinator, was alone on the sideline for much of the game. Yet Michigan State had their quarterback come to the sideline for the first half. Uh, they lost 49 nothing. and did not go well. Number two, uh, coincidentally, uh, in bowl games this year, schools are going to be able to use communication technology, the very type of things that are used to avoid signal stealing and everything that comes with that. Now, this is a coincidence. This was passed in the summer. I had heard about it many weeks ago and was working on a story about this topic in general before the Michigan thing blew up. Um, A lot of the specifics have yet to be determined, whether that's helmets, whether that's wristbands, what happens if one team wants to use it and one team doesn't, do they need to use the same thing? Conferences, are having their weekly administrator meetings to figure that stuff out. They're still in the stage of gathering feedback from coaches. But the Michigan scandal has also kind of reignited a stir to make this happen. You know, everybody knows it's kind of ridiculous that you have people holding up bed sheets and signs and stuff during college football games when the NFL has had this type of communication since 1994. There are many reasons it hasn't happened in college football, most notably liability with helmets if you put something in the helmet. But um, this may be widespread as soon as next year, whether that's helmets or wristbands or something, we may finally be moving into the 21st century with communication technology in college football. 
Yeah, it's something that's come up a lot in the last week in, in my conversations. The Big Ten pushed for this last offseason, yes. actually. Not not tied to this directly. But there are a lot of people in this conference that believe that this should have already been implemented. This this wouldn't have been an issue, right? You wouldn't have people trying to steal signs and the extents that someone may go to to try to steal signs if you could just communicate directly from the coach to the to the player through their headset or an electronic wristband whatever it is the technology exists and there is more technology on the sidelines of high school games than there is in college just feels very outdated sometimes it takes something like this to push something along that is already being bandied about and discussed but maybe some people believe you know well I don't know if everyone can afford this well you may be in a scenario where not everyone can afford a $10 million head coach, but the people that can do. And this is something that you could do by conference. By conference, you could make it work a different way. It also may not be as expensive as people think if you're only doing a couple helmets, right? You'd only need, you know, your quarterback and the backups and a player on defense. Or again, the wristbands may not be super expensive. This is something that I think people need to look into, and it would really avoid a lot of these issues and declutter the sidelines, which matters to a lot of people who I've talked to as well. So that's something to keep in mind and see the experiment in play this postseason. And then again, potentially as a just overall rule that will change in the future. Number three, uh, we got an update from Steve Sarkeesian about Quinn Ewers and his health. The quarterback will miss time with an AC joint sprain in his throwing shoulder he suffered that injury during Texas's win over Houston. He didn't return to the game after taking that big hit on third down scramble. He went back into the locker room, came back out with his right arm in a sling. Malik Murphy finished the game. He didn't really throw the ball. Uh, but this week, Steve Sarkeesian said on Monday, if they were needing to play a game on Monday, Murphy would start the game. But he also has a ton of confidence in true freshman Arch Manning, whose name should sound very familiar. Both of them will get a lot of reps this week, and Quinn Ewer's injury is not expected to be season-ending. But this could still certainly impact the Big 12 race. It could certainly impact the CFP race. So it's interesting to keep tabs on that as we are about to have Georgia play its first game in three years without Brock Bowers as well. Yeah, and it's... Uh... Two years in a row now that Ewers has gotten injured. I think last year was a left clavicle, I think was right. So this is a little bit different. Um, but Texas's season changed last year when he got hurt. And while Texas is uh, playing very well this year, they have Kansas State at home in two weeks, November 4th. Kansas State seems to have figured things out and is playing very well right now. So something to keep an eye on there with Texas, uh, which just barely escaped Houston by literally inches in that game. Number four, Arkansas has fired offense coordinator Dan Enos just eight games into his first season on this staff. He had a three-year contract, so he's going to be likely paid a few million dollars as part of that. Wide receivers coach Kenny Guyton, anybody remember that name from Ohio State, will take over the play calling. Arkansas is now two and six overall after a ugly Seven to three loss to Mississippi State. So Arkansas is kind of in this weird place where, you know, is Sam Pittman going to be the guy long term? And you see a lot of head coaches, you make the coordinator change to kind of stave that off for a little bit. Um, an interesting part about Sam Pittman in a potential coaching change, though, is that his buyout changes depending on what his record is. 
it is 75% of the remaining uh, contract if his record is above 500. It's 50% if he's below 500. He is currently 18 and 16 since 2001. So at the moment, it would be about a $16 million, $16.5 million buyout. If he loses the next three games, it drops down to 11. So something to keep in mind if things do not turn around for Arkansas. But uh, we haven't seen the head coaching changes, but we are starting to see the coordinator changes. Yeah, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but typically we would have already had a handful of head coaches fired for performance. It hasn't happened this year. Some of the coaches who came into the season on the hottest of hot seats have played their way off of it. Um, There are some buyouts that are big numbers, so it'll be something to follow moving forward. But Dan Eno, so far, the highest profile coordinator change that we've had yet this season. Number five, I want to set up the fact that next week on Halloween, it will be the first CFP rankings, the midseason one. This is actually the most interesting one outside of the final one because it gives us a sense of how the committee is viewing some of the top teams. There's always turnover in the committee membership. Um, There certainly is this year. And you just get a sense of, okay, what are they – what are they prioritizing? What are they valuing? What are they discounting? How much are they caring about the big wins or, you know, offsetting losses? And this year, I think George is probably going to be the interesting question coming in. Um, you know, they've looked shaky sometimes. They've had a couple close calls, but they haven't lost. They also haven't played anyone super, super challenging yet. How does the committee see them? How does the committee see Michigan Uh, And then a team like, let's say, Ohio State or somebody who has, you know, a lot of big wins in their resume, Florida State. How do they compare to one another? Want to give you guys a quick note as well. We will be live. Power Hour will be live on Tuesday nights on the Until Saturday YouTube channel, reacting live to the rankings. And Power Hour will be publishing immediately after. So you will start getting your Power Hour on the feed on Tuesday nights. You can still listen to us on Wednesdays. Happy to be there. But you can also hang out with us live after the rankings each Tuesday night. Yeah, I mean, Michigan's on a bye this week. So I would be honestly stunned if Michigan is ahead of Ohio State in the first CFP rankings, just based on what the committee typically does at this point. The other question I will have is, what do they do with the group of five? Because they are typically underranking the group of five relative to the polls. We've got some group of five teams in the bottom of the top 25 right now. Your Tulane's, your James Madison's, your Air Force's. What happens if the first rankings come out and we don't have a top 25 G5 team? That will be something to monitor. If there are no top 25 G5 teams at the end, they will pick one among the five conference champions to play in the New Year's Six Bowl. So that will be something to watch as well. Quick question for you. You think JMU gets ranked? Uh, I don't know if they can. They're not yeah, eligible. I I get, they're I, not eligible I, for I the postseason. They're, they're not eligible. Well, they can make the postseason if there aren't enough six and six teams. They can go to a bowl game. They can't go to the Sun Belt Championship game. They can't go to the New Year's Six Bowl. Whether or not they can be ranked, I'm honestly not sure. And we should probably reach out to somebody at the playoff after this recording. That is a great question. Yeah, I think that that's something to look at, even though they wouldn't be able to get that New Year's Six playoff spot. 
Um, but we will we will look into that and, and see what happens. Because, again, they might be the best team in the group of five, but they cannot play in the postseason, and they are not going to be playing in the, S- in the Sun Belt Championship game either. So it feels like that is going to come down to Air Force and Tulane. Be interested to track that moving forward. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, let's move over into our open bar segment. Each week, we solicit questions from you guys. Uh, If you go to theathletic.com, you can find our prompt for a mailbag, submit questions on Mondays and Tuesdays, and we will pick our favorites and get into them each week. Chris, I'm going to set you up, and you can take this first one first from Rodrigo A. Penn State is in a really weird place. They are a very good program, but not a great one. This is Franklin's 10th season, and he is under contract through 2031, so he is going nowhere. However, I don't think there is any sign that he will take the program to an elite level. Is Penn State just going to spend the rest of the decade stuck in the land of good and never make the leap towards greatness? It it sure felt like that after watching that loss to Ohio State on Saturday, in which it never really looked like they had a chance. Even when it was a one-score game, even when they get a goal line stop, even when they get a muffed punt that they recover at midfield, it never felt like they were really in it. They go one for 13, I'm sorry, one for 16 on third down. Drew Aller looked so uncomfortable. They didn't have the playmakers at wide receiver. And so this is what Penn State is. I don't think Penn State, Michigan on November 11th is going to be particularly close just based on what we've seen so far. And if you're Penn State, what what are you at that point? You're you're annually a 9-3, and 10-2 team that was that is not in contention for the championship. That said, yeah. Yeah. the coming changes to the Big Ten will probably benefit Penn State more than anybody else. As in, there's a 12-team playoff that Penn State would often get in as a 9-10-11 seed, and they don't need to be better than both Ohio State and Michigan to get into the Big Ten championship game. So Penn State has not looked like a team that can contend for a national championship. Um, But can they win the Big Ten once in a while? Yeah. And I don't think that'll change. I remain stunned that James Franklin and Penn State agreed to that giant contract at the end of 2021 with a buyout that started at $12 million. Like they are locked together for a long time still. And neither side seems all that happy, but this is what it's going to be. What do you think? I felt the same about that extension and the deal. It's a long time to be somewhere. We've seen this over and over and over again of 
it, it's not even like necessarily like the program needs to to fall off a cliff, but people want more. And, you know, I always think of Mark Richt in Georgia and, you know, the frustrations there being a 9-10 win team. And they go out and they hire Kirby Smart and it gets them over that hump. And now they've won back-to-back national titles going for a third this season. So um, I think that there is a lot of frustration in the Penn State fan base. This year really felt like a if not now, when? Because you had the talent on the field. You We thought going into the game that you had the advantage at quarterback, quarterback play. Um, but there are just so many different things that went wrong in that game. I think the defense played well enough to win it, but there's a lot of questions about the offense, the play calling, uh, and the personnel. You know, those receivers are not what they need to be. Uh, couldn't get separation, can't be those game breakers. Uh, you didn't have a Marvin Harrison, and it was pretty apparent. So it's going to be interesting, especially if they lose to Michigan again. To your point, though, like Penn State's the poster child for the 12-team playoff. Like they would be in it more than anybody. We'd be talking differently if it had existed that way all along. But, you know, they're also not going to play Michigan and Ohio State every year in the new Big Ten. The, they don't have any yeah. protected rivals. They're, quote, unrivaled, right? Um, so, yes, they will be measured differently, as will all of these teams. And Michigan and Ohio State will continue to be measured against each other, but Penn State will have other teams to chase and possibly other teams they maybe match up better against and can actually beat sometimes. But incredibly frustrating day and performance. And I think I didn't think I could have as many questions as I do about this particular team coming out of a game like that, and I have more than I expected. And as much as, you know, again, we're going to say, yes, technically they were one of 16 on third down. They were 0 for 15. It was just that that drive at the end. You can look at Aller's stats, too, outside mm-hmm. of that that drive at the end. It, it was a miserable day, and, and a lot of different pieces did not go well. But again, the defense defense has a lot of talent there. All right, defense looked do... very good. Defense looked very good. As the season had been going on, I kept thinking, I like this Penn State defense more than I thought, and I don't like this yep. offense as much as I thought I would. And then that's how yep. exactly how it played out against Ohio State. Yeah, I was there for the West Virginia game. Drew Aller, a lot of promise. Best performance of the season. Um, and then it just, you know, the lack of explosives, all the stuff that we've been talking about, Penn State did showed up, ended up being a factor in that loss. Uh, and go read Audrey Snyder's excellent column about where this program is. Um, I am sure that our reader, Rodrigo A, read that because, uh, you know, I think his question has a lot of the same sentiments. Okay. Next question is from Byron V. We're going to stay in the Big Ten. I'm tired of everyone ragging on Iowa's offense or lack thereof. If they're winning, what's the problem? Now, I think it will get sorted out when all four Pac-12 schools join and there's no more divisions. So, Chris, I know you want to talk also about the way this game ended because part of the reason there is an hyper-focus on Iowa's offense this week is because it did not get bailed out by a punt return touchdown. When you play a style of football that is going to live on the margins, you're going to lose games on the margins. You're going to win games when Cooper DeGene returns a punt against Michigan State or your defense gets a pick six where you score one offensive touchdown in a game. And they almost did it when they had, what, 12 offensive yards in the second half against Minnesota or something like that. They nearly got bailed out again with a punt return. Now, As for the play itself, we can talk about that in a minute, but you open yourself up to one bad call ruining your week. 
every time, you know, if, if that type of stuff happens. And to Byron's point, when there are no more Big Ten divisions and you've got USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington in the conference, I was not going to be a nine and three, eight and four team anymore if if this is the product they're putting out there every single week. And we just talked about it above Arkansas fired their offense coordinator eight games into his first season, and they're paying him millions of dollars to go away. Indiana's fired its offense coordinator. We all know about Brian Ferentz and the drive to 325 and the contract he has and everything like that. But the fact that Kirk Ferentz let it get to this point uh, is a major problem and a disservice to everybody in that program. Like, look, this is not a team that's going four and eight every year. So like, I understand part of it being like, don't want to change too much, but you can't survive playing like they do every week. That's how you, you, you lose a, Like they could have made the big 10 championship game last year, I think. And then they lost to somebody late in the season. I don't yep. remember who it was. Um, like it's, it's, that's the problem. So much is good there. Like you have such a good defense and, and your ability to develop tight ends and stuff like that. If you can just be average in offense, this team could be, this program could be very, very good. And Ari Wasserman wrote a takedown column on Tuesday about it, but just how it's disgusting that I was let it get to this point. Um, so that's my thoughts on, on the off the corner situation. What are yours? And then we can talk about the play itself. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on the margin being very thin. We've joked about this, but like they have won games off of that great defense, elite special teams, and like one big play. They'll get like one long touchdown run or one special teams punt return touchdown with pick six, whatever. And that's like it. And those are the points that they need. But when you have 12 yards of offense in the entire second half, like clearly there was a lot more you could be doing that it didn't need to come down to this one play. And that's what's really frustrating. We say this every year. If Iowa could just have an offense that ranked like 70, 70th in Mm -hmm. FBS, they would be blowing teams out of the water because of how good the defense and special teams are. But they rank dead last in so many offensive categories. It's getting worse. It's getting worse each year, right? This started probably two seasons ago because they made it to the Big Ten title game. And it's getting more and more painful. Ton of injuries this year, not helping. But Cade McNamara did not look close to the quarterback that he was at Michigan, even when he was playing. And I know he wasn't playing 100% healthy, but like they have had talented players, but it's the system. It's a scheme. You know, Scott Docterman has done a great job diving into the numbers, the tendencies of how predictable they are and what they run out of each set. You don't need to steal signs to figure out what Iowa is going to do and how to stop it. Right. And I think that that is just a fundamental issue. And you're right about his father letting this get to this point. Gary Barda was his off, his athletic director for a very long time, also let, let it get to that point. Also implemented that clause in the contract, which has made this whole situation in Iowa a laughing stock for no fault of their fan bases or other people involved in the program's fault. And it's really frustrating to see all of this play out and know that changes are not going to be made. We stopped counting. We stopped doing the math on the drive to 325 because they are not going to hit it. It's going to be I, low. I didn't. I didn't okay, stop. They're not the going to hit it. They, they, have to, they have to average like 30, 30, 33 points a game the rest of the season to get to it. Yeah, that's it's not going to happen. But again, there is always time to make the right decision. It might be years late. But you're going to need to do it. It's going to be really interesting, Chris, and I'd love maybe in the offseason for us to dive into this a little further. But there are going to be a lot of programs that are going to have to shift things based on the new Big Ten. We kind of 
hyper focus on Iowa's offense and really the the offenses in the in the West of like how they're going to have to actually move the ball and be able to score quicker. But USC and the way that they are going to have to play and the offensive and defensive line is going to have to change when they come to the Big Ten. Like the styles that are going to be coming in and changing and forcing people to change going to be really fascinating. So we'll we'll definitely make sure we continue to cover that uh, here on Power Hour, maybe in the off season, but we'll sprinkle it in throughout the the season as well. Want to move over to Happy Hour before we dive into well, our real science. quick, real quick. We sorry, we promised we would give our thoughts about the play about the power oh, return yes, play. Yes. Yes. Um, I was in the press box in East Lansing, not watching the game. I was talking with somebody from the Big Ten from the conference and a reporter walks over and says, hey, you're probably going to get a lot of calls about another officiating question. <laughs> and so we walked over to the TV and saw what happened at, at the mo- at, at, when I first saw it. I thought, oh, I can understand why people thought that was a fair catch. Like, I think it was a good call. Now, upon later learning that they didn't call it live, that they reviewed it, that they went back, that is very iffy. And I know there was part of an out of bounds review and stuff like that. I ultimately, I do understand why it looked like a fair catch. He waved his hand multiple times. It got close to his head level. Like it was a really unfortunate situation. I understand why Iowa fans are pissed, especially if they go and review it and ultimately come up with that. Uh, but ultimately I do think it was a good call, even if the process was maybe not so great. My, my stance on this is I've never seen it called. I, I understand that it has been, but I've never seen it. I think everyone on the field played out because they thought that it was not a fair catch. They, you know, he was clearing out. He was moving around. People tried to tackle him. I understand the rule. And I think that it is okay to call in the moment live because the idea of that rule is for deception. It's kind of like Kenny Pickett's fake slide. The reason that rule changed was because if you fake a slide and then defenders, you know, and you pretend like you're giving yourself up and defenders stop trying to tackle you and then you're not, you're deceiving them and trying to make it a safety issue. Well, if you're pretending to call a fake, uh, a fair catch and not, it's a safety issue, right? And it's a deception issue. But if everyone on the field played it out because they thought that it was not a fair catch, then the deception wasn't there. And I don't know how you can add that back in after replay. I understand it was a reviewable rule, but that's the part that doesn't make sense to me. And I would like to see changed um, or the rule itself change. But again, it's kind of like the same thing with the scouting and maybe some of the ideas behind science stealing. Like sometimes you need to have these examples kind of stare everyone in the face for changes to happen if there are issues with the way the rules are written or there are things you could do better. And, and that's what happened because I, I, I remember this happening one time. And while you were talking, I looked it up. It was 2007, UConn, Louisville. UConn returned a punt return. Uh, he appeared to call for a fair catch uh, and Louisville stopped. He caught the ball and ran down and scored a touchdown. The referees didn't stop the play. And apparently a fair catch signal was not reviewable. Uh, I don't know. They may have changed it after that point, but I do remember something like that happening one time and uh, that might be the reason. So yeah, it's a tough break there for Iowa, which kind of opens up the big 10 West again. Yes, it does. It is uh, clear as mud as it usually is. Let's move over into our happy hour segment. Uh, again, we will get into our Rocky conversation. Uh, we'll dive deeper into Michigan in just a second, but when we talk about happy hour, we talk about things that we're excited about, things we're enjoying. 
sometimes it's sneaking up on people, and I think this is one of them. Uh, hey, Alabama's won quite a few games in a row. Uh, could they win the SEC West? Could they win the SEC? Could they sneak into the CFP? Chris, are we forgetting about the Crimson Tide a little bit? Do we write them off too soon? I think we did, because this is all very much on the table now. Alabama has one loss. Uh, They're back into the top 10. Their remaining games, LSU, Kentucky, Chattanooga, Auburn. I don't know. I don't have the I don't have the line in front of me this week, but if they beat LSU, they're going to win the West. I, I don't see them losing to K- Kentucky or Auburn. And if they're in, if they have, if they're a one loss team in the SEC championship and you beat uh, Georgia, say Alabama's probably in the playoff. Now, how likely is that? I don't know, but it's a heck of a lot likelier than it was a few weeks ago. They were trailing at halftime against Ole Miss, Texas A&M, and Tennessee. They came back to win all of them. They've only allowed six second-half points in those three games. That suddenly opens up a world of possibility that we did not think was possible when Alabama barely escaped USF earlier this season. So we're not talking about the Tide very much, and I think people need to start doing that. And I think the LSU game this week uh, will obviously be the biggest test. Jaden Daniels has been electric. The defense has been terrible. Big game. Yeah, and the way that they've won games, I think, is part of the reason that people haven't kind of gone down this path all the way. I think right. I've come to terms with the fact that they could certainly be in Atlanta, right? But, you know, the offense, you still got a lot of questions about the offensive line, the sacks that they give up. But, you know, you got Jalen Milrow scrambling around, making plays with his legs, chucking it deep. James Franklin, that can work as an offense, just saying. And it's fun to watch. Like, they are entertaining. These games are not clean. Like, Nick Saban seems to be enjoying this team, but also, like, hating individual moments related to this team. Like, they're fun. They're interesting. Um, And they're definitely not dead yet. I think the coupled, the the loss to Texas, and then just the atrocious performance against USF without Milrow, by the way, trying the different quarterbacks, that got a lot of people to kind of move their attention away. But yes, they could certainly be back in Atlanta and just one win away from a CFP berth. Going to be interesting to track that one moving forward. And that'll be a great game this weekend. A couple really nice monster games in the SEC. Been a couple weeks since we've had some big ones. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. It is time to go on the rocks. We talk about the friction and the tension somewhere in the sport. Now, we know where most of it is, but we got to start here, Chris. You are kind of directly involved in a rocky relationship with Pat McAfee. He became aware of your media poll and your collection of data related to how viewers felt about his role on college game day. And then he said that he may not be coming back to game day. What's the latest there? Yeah, and I I don't think it's a reaction to just a poll, but we talked about the media survey results. No, I think I think it's you specifically. I think you are. Personally it could be. It it could be. It, so like okay. we talked about the media survey last week. I did it two weeks ago. Asked who your favorite announcers are, what networks you like, do you hate realignment, what college game day or, or big noon kickoff, and one of the questions I really wanted to ask was, do you like Pat McAfee on college game day? And we got about 3,100 responses. It was 50% don't like him. About 30% do like him. And about 20% no opinion. And so I tweeted the, the, the findings, many of the findings out there. Uh, this was not a scientific poll by any means. It was online focused, so it's a certain type of audience. And... Uh, there's moderate reaction to it. Awful announcing ends up picking it up a couple days later. And then on, uh, over the weekend on Sunday morning, my get, I get a phone alert with a quote tweet from Pat McAfee tweeting that a lot of people have brought this poll to his attention recently and that he has heard from a lot of fans who are upset about him being on the show and that he's basically not distinguished enough to be on college game day. And then he says, it's a big reason I have not decided to re-sign with College Game Day. Um, excited to see how the season plays out and see what the future unfolds. And we reached out to ESPN for comment, and they said that uh, Pat McAfee's been great on the show. The viewership uh, being up is a sign of that, and Pat McAfee has a home on the show as long as he wants. And that itself drew a large reaction. A lot more people went and found the poll after the fact than before the fact. It might have changed the results. <laughs> so, uh, look, we know Pat McAfee is polarizing, uh, especially the whole Washington state flag thing upset a lot of people. I anecdotally heard from a lot of fans who were very upset at that, at that point. Um, so people have mixed feelings. He has a big fan base. He's gotten to where he is in his media career because of that, because he's very good at what he does. Uh, personally, I like him on college game day. I, I, I like the energy he brings. Uh, I think it's been a breath of fresh air after the last number of years and the viewership being up the last two years, I think is part of that. Uh, but also the Washington state thing, not a good way to handle that. You know, you could have been more playful, could have apologized, did not double down. And so just, you've got this clash now between hardcore college football fans who feel like he's kind of infringing on their traditions. So 
we'll see what McAfee's future is. Uh, perhaps my media poll upset him to the point that it made a distinction. But yeah, so didn't expect to be talking about that coming into the week. No, but that is definitely something to follow. Uh, you know, every college football fan follows what's going on with game day, whether or not they are watching it. So we'll be interested to see where that wraps up. Okay, let's get to the actual rockiest relationship in college football. And the situation that's going down in Ann Arbor is there's a lot of layers to it. So I want to hit as many as we can here. We've talked about the conversations that this has prompted about technology and its use on the sidelines, sign stealing in itself. You know, our colleague Bruce Feldman has written about this, the art of sign stealing, Clemson, Brett Venables, places that have been known to being really good at it. But now that we've gotten some more information about exactly how this uh, scheme was operating from from Connor Stallions, who is, again, he is on paid leave right now amid the NCAA investigation. Like, there's there's a couple things I want to hit with you, Chris, about just sort of like where we think and what we don't know about where it's going to go from here, because Michigan is already under NCAA investigation for the COVID era, era uh, recruiting violations. Um, and so, you know, we still don't know exactly, like, are these two cases going to combine officially? Um, what does it mean to be accused of violations like this while already under investigation? Like we, th- we talked about repeat violators and, um, you know, what happens when people make break rules while they're on probation and, Again, under investigation. And then you also have the fact that like there hasn't been a case like this where we don't know what the available penalties or likely penalties would be because there's no precedent. So like you and I have talked about this a lot about the NCAA and they've moved towards like they're shifting in the way that they penalize schools for rule breaking. They have find schools more. They have put show causes and more like direct penalties on the head coaches. They're trying to go after the adults in the room. And so, you know, it took a lot for Tennessee to avoid a postseason ban because everything that they had done typically in the past would have been a postseason ban. The NCAA says, you guys have cooperated a lot and we are going to have a record setting fine for you guys instead and not penalize Mm -hmm. the players who weren't involved. So they're moving away from trying to penalize players who were not directly involved in the rule breaking. So, again, I I think it's important to think about this, that you're not talking about athletes uh, playing who are ineligible. So you're not talking about ineligible players in a game, um, which is where you typically see like vacated wins, where you see postseason bans, those types of penalties. But a postseason ban is still an available penalty. It exists, even though the NCAA hasn't used it in necessarily in cases like Tennessee, where they would have in the past, it is an available penalty for egregious violations, for repeat offenders. There's possibilities. But but Chris, like, I think it's important to talk this out because we don't know. But like there is a range of possible penalties. And you still have the element of Jim Jim, Jim Harbaugh being held accountable for it, regardless of if they ever can prove directly that he knew or didn't know what was happening with Connor Salyer. Yeah, and those lack of postseason bans, by the way, come when you're cooperating. And we know Jim Harbaugh has not been cooperating with some of the previous investigations. We don't know how much they're cooperating with this one. This is such a 
this is such a different scandal than we've had in like a long time. It's the kind of NCAA scandal that normal people can understand. It's not eligible player. It's not a cheeseburger. It's not a bag of money. It's not impermissible recruiting visits. It's literally filming somebody's signals and using them in a game. Now, how legal that is, again, is up for debate, but everybody understands what that means. And so I, it's just, it's unprecedented for this to happen like this during the season. Like if it came out after the season, you could see something like, oh, NCAA vacates wins, but Michigan, you know, we saw them win. It doesn't really matter. I don't know what you do during the season. Like I honestly don't know. And we, we've heard mixed things from coaches on how big of a deal having your signals stolen is. They all say everybody does it. Everybody knows they do it. How big of a deal is it when it happens? It, I don't know. And it's just, it's mixed things from coaches. And so that's what the NCAA kind of has to determine. Um, part of it also, again, we don't know the full details of this. Was it just Connor Stallions going rogue? I think the fact that he bought them in his own name would lean toward that because if this was some criminal mastermind scheme, you're not doing something as stupid as that. Well, somebody Um, would have said, don't buy this under your own name and use your own credit card. Right. Right. So we don't, we don't know. Um, But it's likely that Michigan knew the signals. They may not have known how, or maybe they did and maybe they didn't want to know. The other thing to know about Connor Stallions you know, he made $55,000. People are saying, how can you afford the tickets, the travel, sending the tickets, all this kinds of stuff. I think people need to understand Connor Stallions was like a Michigan super fan. Like Devin Gardner, former player, has said, yeah, we used to see him out, out by the bus on road games. Uh, there, there's an interview he did with a website about kind of troops in sports last year that said he bought a house and sold it as an Airbnb and slept in his car to make money, uh, to do all these types of things he could do to just scrounge enough money to volunteer and be around the Michigan staff as much as he could. He really, really, really wanted to be a coach at Michigan. Like that was his dream. Is it possible then that he went above and beyond what he was supposed to do and allowed to do to try to find some sort of edge to be valuable to the staff? Possibly. Is it possible that Michigan found out he was doing this and said, all right, just don't tell us? Possibly. We don't know. That's the communication type of stuff we don't know. There is some stuff that's fishy out there. There is some stuff that's maybe not so much. So these are the unanswered questions we still have. Yes. And I think it's going to be hard to figure out, too, you know, like, what is the impact of the information that he found, right? Like, you know, are are you... How much is different than what would have been available if you're really good at scrounging through, you know, TV tape and the all 22 and different angles that actually are legal to look through um, or you can pick up in a game like there are just like there, it's, it's a hard thing to wrap your hands around because so much of the sign stealing debate and discourse is legal and part of the game. But. You need to connect the dots on certain things, I think. And the money is important piece. Who knew is an yes. important piece. But the issue at hand is like the obtaining of the information because that's the part, the in-person scouting and technology, right? If you're recording things on your phone and then sending them and using that information later, 
Like those are the pieces that are against the rules that we'll have to see how the NCAA looks at this stuff. But we do know right now the NCAA has sent out engagement letters to these opponents. Um, so they are not allowed to talk about this on the record directly anymore because they need to be working with the NCAA. Anyone who has, again, that like in-stadium surveillance footage is they're sending that forward to the NCAA, presumably, and they can piece together all of this. But there is a lot that is still unknown. And Chris, NCAA investigations tend to take a long time. Obviously, like this seems like people are very willing. There's a lot of frustrated coaches in the Big Ten, a lot of people who believe this is beyond the code of conduct, right? Like that sign stealing is part of the game, but this is so far above and beyond what is allowed. But is there, like we, and we don't know the answer for sure on this, but it does feel like these things tend to take a, a long time and that this could play out after the season. Like the final resolution could be yeah. after the season. And, and, and like oftentimes, like if the NCAA gives you a notice of something, you have like 90 days to respond. So like, this could take a while. And and the only thing that came to mind when thinking about something similar is Cam Newton and Auburn. When you had the scandal of whether or not his, his, his father was uh, uh, seeking money for his services, you know, when he was uh, transferring and Auburn, because it was one point late in the season, Auburn said Newton had been ruled ineligible but then the NCAA ruled him eligible quickly later saying that he and Auburn did not know his father's actions like that. That's and ultimately there were no major violations for Auburn when it when it came to that, because because it was it was right before the SEC championship game that year that he was ruled ineligible and then eligible like really quickly. And ultimately, Auburn goes on to win the national championship. And as Cam Newton said in that uh, Roll Tide War Eagle documentary, it was an ongoing investigation. <laughs> and ultimately, nothing really came of it. Auburn was cleared. So, ah, uh, you know, there, our, I colleagues mean, Durman, our, our, our colleagues Stuart Mandel has talked about ruling Michigan ineligible for the Big Ten Championship and all these types of things. I, I don't know at this point, just because there are still so many questions. Yeah, I, I same. I, I'm not sure. And that's fast approaching. I mean, it's almost November already. I, I also think, you know, Cam Newton's a great example of something like this playing out in season with, you know, a contender. Todd Gurley um, was in season. DeAndre Ayton, like they're the decisions of, you know, kind of to play or not play players that might be ineligible. You also have other situations where like maybe there's something going on. You had this FBI investigation to college basketball. A number of schools said, we're going to keep our head coaches and keep playing games. And you just kind of wait for the fallout. If there is fallout later, I've said my piece about vacating wins. Like we all saw it happen. Right. But nobody, in, cares. nobody cares. So again, like it's, it's an interesting case for this to be an NCAA investigation while the NCAA is in the position it is right now where it's been weakened. And typically has moved slow. Plus you have a previous investigation, which again, if you're combining cases, do you pause that, do other things then move even slower? What does this all mean for Jim Harbaugh's future as a college football coach? Does he just bounce to the NFL if someone will take him next year? So many questions and we will continue to get into them because the story is obviously not going away, but we do need to start wrapping up today's show uh, with our last call. We cheers or we jeers, we Whatever we would want to be doing as we are finishing off our last round of drinks at a bar, celebrate something, ranting about something. Uh, Chris, I will let you go first. 
First thing is an update to a question we had earlier in the podcast, which is, is James Madison eligible to be ranked in the CFP top 25? During the podcast, I reached out to the CFP. They responded, no, they only rank eligible teams. So James Madison cannot be in the CFP top 25. Wanted to update everybody on that. My last call is a little sappy and sentimental, and it's just for the idea in general environment of college football. I spent the last three weekends going to major rivalry games, Texas versus Oklahoma at a state fair, Washington versus Oregon in Seattle, and Michigan, Michigan State in East Lansing. And I had not covered a game at my alma mater, Michigan State, since 2011. And I'd only been back to campus one or two times since like 2014. So to just kind of go back and see that the last three weekends, it just felt like this is the type, just, it was like, it was a reminder of like college football is not the NFL. And there are so many parts of the sport that we like from tailgates that are on campus and just everybody being together. Like I was at, I was stopping by one tailgate at Michigan state and the basketball team and Tom Izzo like walked in. And this is a, a top five basketball team, future NBA players. And they're just kind of walking around, hanging, talking with people like normal And it's just, it was a really cool environment to be around that the last few weeks. And as always, college football is just, there's nothing like it in the entire world, really. And while we have this uncertain future of college sports, whether or not athletes should be employees, whatever's going to happen with realignment, I just hope we don't lose the special feeling that college football creates, that it's not a pro sport, that it's not, that... And no matter what place you go to, it feels like the same general thing. It's not. Every place is different. Every place has their own traditions. And I hope the people in charge of college sports make sure that they keep that in place. Uh, so speaking of what makes college football unique, my last call is going to Jeff Trailer at UTSA. This is my favorite story of the week. It would be getting more attention if not for all the jokes that everyone is getting off about Michigan. Um, UTSA football coach Jeff Trailer had his finger accidentally smashed by a rat trap during a motivational ploy after beating FAU 36 to 10. So what he had his staff do was place more than 100 rat traps within players' lockers as a metaphor for don't eat the cheese. So the goal was to make sure that they didn't get too high on themselves and revel in the praise too much. A player who will not be identified reloaded his rat trap and put it on the podium where trailer addresses the team. He did not see the trap and you can guess what happened there next quote. I put my hand there and it looks like my pinky got smashed by a hammer. It would have killed a lesser man, but I'm okay. Only in college football, fantastic quote, fantastic whole, the the idea of the rat traps to the poor execution, to the accident and the injury. Incredible. Bravo to UTSA. Last call. Cheers to you for owning it, for telling the truth about how you injured your pinky and just giving us the most amazing college football moment of the week. That'll do it for today's episode. A lot of seriousness and a lot of serious topics, but wanted to end on a light note. You're not supposed to actually set the trap. 
That's the mistake. You leave the rat traps out. You don't set them. You don't, you can, you don't literally spring it back and put it down. Man, that like, thank God he kept his pinky. Man, it could have been, could have been worse. By the way, related, I've had a single mouse in our garage for months. I've set many a traps. It's not working, but apparently they work to catch a college football coach. Maybe you should call Jeff Trailer for some advice. I think that's the correct outcome here. But yes, it would have killed a lesser man, but it did not kill Jeff Trailer. It did not kill Power Hour either. So for Chris Benini, I'm Nicole Auerbach. We appreciate you listening. Reminder to follow the Until Saturday podcast feed and the YouTube channel because next week and the rest of the season will be coming at you live after the CFP rankings on Tuesday nights. Power Hour will then publish so you can listen to us Tuesday nights or Wednesday as usual, but we'll be there and we'll talk to you again next week.